Hello, and welcome to the latest Stevenson Harwood Employment Law podcast. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes and Stitcher, or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Richard Friedman, and I'm a senior associate in Stevenson Harwood's international employment team. In this podcast, I'm joined by Rhiannon Davis, a senior associate in our competition team, to look at some potential competition issues that can arise, often unexpectedly, in the employment context both COVID and non-COVID related. Thanks for joining us, Rhiannon. Good to be here, Richard. It's fair to say that there often isn't significant crossover between our respective expertise, but it's clear from the work we've done together that there is more than might be expected. Before we talk about that crossover, it would be good to hear a little from you about what competition law is. You're not the first person to ask me that, Richard. In short, we advise clients on situations where companies might be considered to be preventing or hindering the operation of fair competition in the market or markets where they're active. This can come about in a number of ways. For example, where two or more companies with large market shares combine all parts of their businesses to create an even bigger market player or where a company that already has a large market share behaves in a way that hurts its customers or prevents its competitors from competing fairly. It can also occur when companies that should be competing with each other get together and agree to limit or restrict normal competition in some way. You'd be forgiven for not seeing much obvious overlap between that and employment law, but as we found out, that's not the case. That's right. Actually, when you start to look closely, you can see that there are, in fact, a number of points of crossover. And these are only increasing. Shall we take, for example, a few matters and potential crossover issues that we've worked on and discussed with your team recently? Yes, seems like a good idea. One potentially interesting situation which could arise would be where an employee involved an organisation in cartel activity and the organisation might therefore be looking to secure the employee's exit from the business. As most of our listeners will be familiar with, employees, and especially senior employees, will often exit via a settlement agreement which essentially provides both parties with a clean break. And that's no issue in most circumstances. But in a situation like this, the UK's competition regulator, the Competition and Markets Authority, or CMA for short, can often be involved. And that's because where an organisation discovers that it has engaged in cartel activity, it has the option of confessing its participation in the cartel to the CMA in exchange for immunity from any fines which the CMA might ordinarily impose. In such circumstances, companies will have very strict cooperation obligations towards the CMA in order to preserve their immunity. And this can make such a clean break with the employee problematic for the company if the settlement agreement is not correctly drafted. Absolutely. Essentially, where the CMA requires cooperation from a company as part of an investigation, for example, where a company is benefiting from immunity or leniency for any reason, The duty of cooperation extends to ensuring cooperation from the company's employees and the CMA will not have much sympathy for a company that in any way fetters its ability to cooperate as required. So if an employee who has information that's valuable to the CMA's investigation has left the company and will no longer cooperate with the CMA's investigation, this could lead to the CMA potentially penalising the company in some way for failing in its corporate duty to cooperate as required. And that can be frustrating and problematic for an employer, especially where they want to terminate the employee in question for their misconduct in connection with the subject of the investigation. 
But there are a couple of potential solutions for an employer, although both have elements which may not be particularly palatable. The first is to continue the employment of the employee during the CMA's investigation. The upside to this is that the company will have a greater degree of control over the employee to ensure they provide the necessary cooperation to the CMA. The downside with that approach is that the company has to keep paying the employee when they may otherwise have terminated their employment. An alternative approach is to enter into a settlement agreement which has specific clauses relating to the exiting employee providing required assistance with the CMA's investigation. This provides less control than a company would have over existing employees if they'd remained in employment, but it does provide some help, especially if there is some commercial leverage that the employee may lose should they not comply with that contractual obligation. Again, however, having to give that commercial incentive to the employee in the first place may not be particularly palatable if they would otherwise have been terminated for gross misconduct with no other further payments paid. That may lead many of you to ask the question, why not just let the employees exit in such circumstances without imposing any obligation to help the CMA investigation? And that's probably a question for you, Rhiannon. Well, quite simply, Richard, the potential financial consequences of losing immunity or leniency are very likely to significantly outweigh the commercial leverage which would need to be given to an employee to ensure the necessary cooperation. For example, losing immunity in a CMA investigation could potentially cost a company a seven-figure sum, and that's likely to greatly outweigh the cost of obtaining the necessary cooperation, no matter how unpalatable that is. And for what it's worth, the CMA can pursue individuals itself and is actually getting a lot tougher on them. So accordingly, they wouldn't necessarily get off scot-free in such circumstances. Thanks, Rhiannon. That's interesting to know. Another area of overlap where we have collaborated recently is on COVID-related matters. Over the past year or so, we've been advising a lot of employers on significant changes to their business, from furlough leave to redundancies, and from changing work location to changing terms and conditions of employment. Many of the challenges posed to businesses by COVID are new and have resulted in businesses having to think of new and innovative ways to move forward. Unsurprisingly, this has led to certain businesses watching and even discussing with other businesses in their sector what they have done to see how they are handling matters. Whilst the intention behind such information gathering is often good, it's not without risk from a competition perspective, as I understand it. That's right. And it comes down to businesses not accidentally acting in a way that's deemed to be anti-competitive. Whilst organisations may completely innocently be discussing, even informally, ideas on how to protect their business during unprecedented times, doing so with competitors puts them in danger of being in breach of competition law. Are there any examples of this? Yes. So many businesses have required employees to take salary reductions or change working hours during the pandemic. Both are, of course, viable logical steps to take to preserve businesses in this difficult climate. But if those decisions are taken following discussions with competitors, the CMA could well have an issue with that. This would be on the basis that a business would be assumed to be taking into account its competitors' strategies vis-à-vis employees when setting its own, which would be a breach of competition law. Now, strange as it may sound, companies are viewed as competitors not only on the market or markets where they supply products or services, but also on the job market, i.e. the market for talent. If businesses discuss employment terms and conditions with their competitors on the job market, then this can create a less competitive job market and limit individuals' employment choices. 
Essentially, the employees could be getting a worse deal in relation to the terms of their employment than they would have done had their employer competed for talent independently and without reference to what its competitors were doing. But there must be things that companies can safely talk to their competitors about. Yes, absolutely, there are. So examples would be practical matters like measures to protect employee health and well-being or how best to comply with social distancing requirements so that employees can return to the office. What would be more problematic would be discussions, say, about the amount of compensation to be offered to employees on furlough or whether your organisation is intending to implement a hiring freeze. This is by no means an exhaustive list, though, so if anyone listening would like further advice or assistance on this topic, please do feel free to get in touch with us, whether directly or via your usual Stevenson Harwood contact. And actually, a forum such as a trade association can be a good venue for companies to discuss best practice in terms of some of the safe items that I just mentioned. However, you would need to make sure that safeguards were in place to ensure that any discussions happening at these trade associations do not slip into problematic areas. So make sure that there's an agreed agenda in place, that this is adhered to, and that the minutes of any meeting accurately reflect that discussions stayed within safe territory. I see. And it's not just in relation to COVID-related matters that businesses have to take care when it comes to employment, is it? That's right. There's growing momentum from regulators internationally, focusing on employment itself as an area that's ripe for competition law enforcement. Hence the potential issue with employers discussing varying employment arrangements relating to COVID-19. As I mentioned, the rationale behind this is that companies compete not only in the market for the sale of goods and services, but also in the employment recruitment market. So they effectively compete with each other for talent. Therefore, if companies have arrangements with each other whereby they agree, for example, not to solicit each other's employees and or not to offer wages above a certain level, this could be deemed to be anti-competitive in the same way as it would be if, for example, the companies were agreeing on the prices at which their goods or services should be sold to customers. Now, in terms of enforcement against companies who engage in this type of behaviour, the US very much leads the way with the Department of Justice having brought several high-profile cases in the past against companies conspiring not to poach each other's employees. And more recently, disgruntled US employees have started to bring claims themselves against their employers, alleging illegal wage-fixing agreements. Outside of the US, the Hong Kong competition authorities have also recently started to tackle both wage-fixing and no-poaching agreements, And closer to home, there have been no poaching, wage fixing and information exchange cases in the Netherlands, Spain, France, Croatia, Turkey and Portugal. In our view, it will likely not be very long before the UK competition authorities follow suit. So it sounds like this is something listeners should be wary of. Yes, absolutely. So do check with your colleagues that you don't have anything of that nature in place, however informally. And if you do, please do get in touch and we can advise you. It's very interesting to hear how completely innocent conversations or approaches in relation to employees can potentially make companies fall foul of competition law. Another area where there is risk and where we've worked together is in relation to tupi transfers and in particularly those arising on service provision changes. As many of you will know, a service provision change is essentially where an organisation outsources, retenders or insources the provision of services. 
Such action will often give rise to a cheapy transfer of the employees who are assigned to the services in question. Many people who deal with cheapy transfers and the retendering of services will be aware of the transfer of information relating to the employees that are involved in such procedures. The retendering process often involves the provision of information relating to the employees who are expected to transfer to enable bidders to price the bid. This information is almost always anonymised for data protection purposes. But data protection is not the only legal implication that organisations should be aware of, as I understand there are also potentially competition issues that can arise in such circumstances. That's right. Essentially, if the organisations who are involved in a Tupi transfer, which could include the outsourcing organisation, the current incumbent provider and the prospective providers, if they are competitors, then the provision of information relating to their employees could be deemed to be anti-competitive by the regulator, even if shared on an anonymised basis, as it could enable the recipient to use that information for anti-competitive purposes. Can you explain a little bit more of what you mean by that, and how the provision of the commercial terms of an employment relationship could be anti-competitive? Of course. Put simply, it could enable a competitor to benchmark its own commercial terms by reference to those set by a competitor, which then inhibits competition in the market. It's this sort of anti-competitive behaviour that the regulator can become interested in. That's not something that organisations disclosing that information will necessarily be thinking of at the time of a retendering. If they innocently made a mistake and disclosed information that was deemed to be anti-competitive, would they be liable? Potentially, yes. So not knowing that something is anti-competitive is not necessarily a defence, and it is the disclosing party who the regulator would take the most interest in. And what are the potential liabilities? It depends, but they can be quite severe. Each of the companies involved in the disclosure could be fined up to 10% of their group global turnover. In addition, criminal sanctions could be brought against individuals, although this would typically only occur where the individuals were involved in a really serious competition law breach, such as price fixing, bid rigging or market sharing. There are potential ways around this though, as we've worked on similar matters recently. One practical solution is to have more general information provided, for example, average salaries for certain types of role, or cumulative costs of benefits rather than specific details which can be provided on an anonymised basis. And that may be sufficient for a prospective service provider to be able to submit a tender. But there will be some circumstances where it's not sufficient. In those instances, one option is for a clean team arrangement to be put in place. What's that? This is something we advise on a lot to alleviate the competition risks that we've spoken about, Richard and also to enable clients to give or get the level of information required for legitimate business purposes. Essentially, a clean team arrangement is where information is provided by one company to a competitor that would ordinarily be deemed to be competitively sensitive information, but it's provided only to certain limited individuals who usually do not have roles in the recipient business where they could use the information for potentially anti-competitive purposes. Or, if the information can only be analysed by someone with such a role, then that person would be, in effect, quarantined from certain aspects of their usual role in the company for a certain period of time after receiving the information. 
And that's in order to ensure that they're not able to use that information in an anti-competitive manner. So essentially, the information is passed and can be passed, but so long as it's only passed to specific people for specific purposes, and in doing that, the competition risks are significantly reduced? That's right, Richard. It's very common in this situation for the recipient party to sign up to what's known as a clean team agreement, which is essentially a set of terms governing how the recipient company will use and disclose any competitively sensitive information it receives. So an agreement like this will typically set out the process for the provision of such information, including restrictions on who the information can be shared with and on what terms, as well as for what purposes. It would also include details of the quarantining of any individual recipient, if appropriate, in such a case. And importantly, any disclosure should be on a need-to-know basis only, for the purpose of the tender only, and the so-called clean team who can see the information should be kept as limited as possible. So, for example, you'd have specific named individuals rather than, say, entire categories of people. In addition, each individual member of the clean team would need to sign up personally to the terms of the agreement. There also needs to be a specific provision for the permanent destruction of the information once the tender is over and the information is no longer needed. I've seen firsthand how a clean team arrangement can facilitate the necessary transfer of information in a tender arrangement, which leads to a cheapy transfer. From an employment perspective, what it means is that businesses should be wary of what they commit to providing at a retender stage so that their contractual commitments do not potentially place them in breach of competition law. Again, that is something we've worked together on to ensure our clients are protected from both the employment and competition perspective. Absolutely. It's really important that they're not unexpectedly falling foul of competition law in what they may otherwise see as a fairly straightforward tendering process or cheapy transfer. Thank you. And finally, there can also be employment-related competition law risks for companies in the context of mergers and acquisitions, as I understand it. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So let me give you an example. We had a situation recently where one company, let's imaginatively call them Company A, was buying another company, Company B. They'd signed the deal, but completion hadn't yet taken place. Now, because the companies were close competitors of each other and had sizable market shares, the CMA had decided that it wanted to review the transaction to see if it might restrict competition in the relevant market. At the same time, Company A was getting very excited about owning Company B and wanted to start making lots of personnel changes before it had obtained CMA clearance. So it was setting up meetings with some of Company B's key employees to discuss their future positions in the merged company, including the potential for redundancies. And how did your team get involved in this? Well, one of the employees who Company A was trying to talk to wanted to know whether he was obliged to, or even allowed to, engage in such discussions, given that Company A hadn't yet bought Company B, and the whole deal needed permission from the CMA in order to proceed. He thought it was premature, and he didn't want to engage with Company A. And what did you advise? Well, in a situation where the CMA has decided to review a transaction, the merging parties are generally not permitted to take steps towards integrating their businesses until the CMA has given it the green light. And this includes Company A making any changes to the organisational structure and management responsibilities of Company B. It also includes making any changes to key staff employed by Company B. 
In fact, in such a situation, Company A should have been taking all reasonable steps to encourage all of Company B's key staff to remain with the company. So our advice to the client, who was the employee of Company B, was absolutely not to engage and indeed to invoke competition law as the reason why he could not talk to Company A. Given that companies can be fined heavily by the CMA for breach of its procedural rules, this gave the client a really powerful tool to use to avoid speaking to Company A. So the CMA is pretty strict about this sort of thing then? Yes, increasingly so actually. They don't like merging parties to do anything that they view as gun jumping and they can and do fine companies for doing this and or they can require them to unwind any steps taken towards integration prior to transaction approval being granted. So as an example, in October 2019, the CMA fined a company in similar circumstances £250,000 for taking steps towards integration when the merger in question had not yet been cleared by the CMA. And the same approach is also taken by the CMA in respect of information exchange between merging parties where their competitors. So senior management need to make sure that they're very careful about managing information flows in such a situation. Companies are allowed to plan for how integration between the merging parties will take place, including in relation to personnel, but they're not allowed to actually implement the integration until the deal has been given the green light by the CMA. Now, this is often a tricky area conceptually for clients to get to grips with, and we have lots of experience advising on this area. So if you are in such a situation and have any queries or would appreciate some more guidance, please do get in touch with us. A lot of this information will be new to many of our listeners, and I suspect individuals within their organisation. What can a company do to protect itself against finding itself in a difficult situation with the CMA? Well, Richard, the first step is to give their employees competition law training so that they're aware of what is and isn't permitted under competition law. This is particularly important for senior management and or anyone in a sales role. The most effective training is often face-to-face, but it can be supplemented by online training and or a written policy. Another advantage of face-to-face training that we found in practice is that it can be used as an opportunity to flush out any issues which employees might be privately worried about. They can explain their concerns and then, if needs be, an internal investigation can be carried out and steps taken to address any issues arising. Sometimes, even if there is an issue, it can be resolved internally by speaking to staff and implementing corrective measures for the future, rather than necessarily needing to approach the competition authorities to report the behaviour. It seems like there is a lot for our clients to be aware of in relation to competition law. Yes, although it may seem like a fairly niche area of law, it actually intersects with a lot of different parts of a company's day-to-day business. Covid-wise, thankfully things are now slowly starting to come back to normal, even if the new normal will not be the same as what we are used to. With regards to employment, the most notable change we are expecting is the increase in remote working. Is this likely to have an impact on the interaction between employment law and competition law? Definitely. The increase in remote working makes it more difficult, really, for companies to monitor their employees' activities and communications. But competition law applies just as much when you're working at home as it does in the office, so people need to be just as compliant as they would be in an office environment. 
there's also a potential impact on the enforcement side. So you've probably heard of competition authorities carrying out so-called dawn raids at the offices of companies which it believes to be involved in anti-competitive behaviour. Or the authorities also have the power to search individuals' homes and private vehicles. And with the increase in home working, we think it's likely that key employees' homes will become more of a target for dawn raids in addition to office premises. And it's also likely that dawn raids that are still occurring at office premises will take place in the absence of a number of personnel, meaning that businesses may have less oversight of the authorities' searches. Thanks very much, Rhiannon. That's been really interesting. As always, the Stevenson Harwood team can bring its experience in this field to help you with these issues. Yes, we'd be very happy to. I appreciate that this has been a bit of a whistle-stop tour and that we haven't been able to go into much detail on all of the topics discussed. So if there's anything that's been mentioned that anyone listening would like to hear more about, however informally, please do just get in touch and we'd be happy to speak to you further. Thanks, Rhiannon. That's very helpful. And thank you for listening. Don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the whole series on Stitcher and iTunes or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website.